much taller. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. I'm taller than Pam. Uh, my name is Jana by call, and I'm going to read today's scripture and then pray for Pastor Robin. Um, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Amen. All right, Pastor. I'm going to lay hands on you. Sure. <laughs> Lord Jesus, we just come before you right now. We just pray for Pastor Robin. Thank you, Lord, that um, we're able to all gather together in this freely in this church. And Lord, we just pray that you give him wisdom as he speaks the word of the Lord and help us all to have ears to hear and eyes to see the word today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. So, I have good news and I have bad news. You know that, that picture at the end of Revelation? You know, the celestial city, you know, being together with God forever. No more death, no more crying, no more pain. Well, the good news is that's where we're going. The bad news is that we're going there together. I think most of us have probably seen the movie the Lord, or read the book or, or both, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, the, the first book in the trilogy is called The Fellowship of the Ring. And the fellowship is made up of nine companions who come from very diverse backgrounds. There's four hobbits, two men, a dwarf, an elf, and a wizard. So dwarfs distrust elves. Elves look down on dwarfs, literally as well as metaphorically. Um, one of the men, Boromir, will eventually succumb to the temptation of the ring. No one quite knows what a wizard is going to do next. And at least some of the hobbits aren't really sure why they're there in the first place. At the, one of my favorite parts is, is Pippin, who speaks with a Scottish accent. Pippin, um, who at the, the council at uh, Rivendell, you know, stands up and says, anyway, you need people of intelligence on this sort of mission quest thing. Great. Where are we going? <laughs> By the end of the first book, Gandalf the wizard has disappeared into the abyss. Boromir is dead. And the fellowship is broken. So last week, I began this series on the one another's of the New Testament by talking about loving one another and about how important it was to Jesus that his disciples, if you like, the fellowship of the king, that we really love one another. And I spoke about how we actually have little or nothing to say to the world, according to that text, if we don't love one another any number of programs or help or assistance, anything we say about the truth of the gospel is undercut if we don't love one another. That was the theory. I said that last week. That was the easy bit. Um, 
this week we're going to start looking at what it looks like in practice. What it really means to be the church that Jesus died for and that he wants to be a beacon for the world. And that's where it gets difficult. So verse 13 that was just read for us says, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Paul says that one of the marks of Christian community is that we bear with one another. And the Greek word, like the English, is rooted in the idea of carrying something. We have a number of similar expressions in English. Like, for instance, if we think we might be bothering someone, we'll say something like, I don't want to be a burden. You know, it's, so there's, there's this idea of carrying something. In other places, it's translated as endure. It's not a naive word. Okay? If you have to bear with or endure a person, it implies there is something about them that rubs you the wrong way, that there's tension in the relationship. I've heard it said more than once that there's more strife and dissension in the church than in any other organization. People say you can usually run a rotary club or a soccer league with less disagreement and conflict than a church. And that's sometimes true. I think part of that is that in church, we're doing more than coming together for a social or a sporting occasion or function. We know that we come together around something more than just a shared interest. The gospel has to do with the very core of who we are, with life itself, with why we're on this earth. And we also know there's a difference between fellowship, as the word is used in the New Testament, and simply having shared interests. We know that in Acts 2, the early church was described as sharing their very lives with one another. Not just this bit or that bit. That bit. They shared their whole lives together. It's important stuff. But be precisely because it is important that we need to be careful that we don't allow our fellowship to be torn apart, like the fellowship of the ring. Like that little band of adventurers in the Fellowship of the Ring, we're called to share our lives together. That's what fellowship means. Unlike any group of people who share their lives, it isn't long before something rubs us the wrong way. Now, some of us have lived in communal houses. You know that, those of who are regulars know that about our, Marilyn and myself. For most of our married lives, Marilyn and I have had people living with us. Um, even now we you know, run a guest house, right? Um, it's only when you live with someone that you really get to know them. We had a guy living with us once. This is in Pakistan when we were living there. We had, he would never, who never watched the whole of a movie, okay? The house would decide they're going to watch a movie at a particular time, given evening. He wouldn't be there. We'd wait. He'd be busy some, doing somewhere else in the house, doing something else. So we'd start without him. And so then he'd arrive about 10 minutes into the movie, start asking questions. Who's that? Why did she do that? <laughs> then he'd leave once or twice during the movie and come back and insist on being brought up to date. So annoying! 
Then there's a difference in how the house is managed, right? The eternal battle between the neat freaks and the slobs. <laughs> That's how they describe each other. In their own minds, they are organized and spontaneous. <laughs> we have to deal with people who have temperaments that are different from us. To someone who is naturally quiet and retiring, a greeting from a cheery, bouncy person can almost be a curse. That's actually biblical. <laughs> Proverbs 27.14 says, If anyone loudly blesses a neighbor early in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. <laughs> I am not a morning person. I, conf I, I agree with this text of scripture. <laughs> Even if you're married and no longer have to get used to different housemates on a regular basis, there are still issues, right? A husband and wife can certainly find enough in each other to make life bitter for both, especially if they choose to major on the minors and become irritated at small things, or even not so small things. I grew up working class in Scotland, where as soon as you get money, you spend it. Marilyn grew up middle class in Canada, where one of the great virtues of life is saving money. We could have let that tear us apart if we hadn't chosen to bear with one another's differences. Marriage partners and housemates are people that we actually choose to share our lives with. And we still learn, end up in conflict with them. We still need to learn to bear with one another. How much more do we have to learn to bear with our brothers and sisters that we haven't chosen? Those who just happen to be in the same fellowship, maybe on the same team. We're all here because God has chosen us and called us here. But he's also chosen them and called them here, right? And we are called to share our lives together. And that takes effort. There are so many opportunities for, to practice bearing with one another. There are cultural differences. I remember being told in training, this is many years ago, by someone who'd been the field leader of an international agency, that one of the biggest issues he faced was the tensions between Brits and Americans, who think they speak the same language, but they don't really. As a result, they're actually less understanding of each other's differences than if somebody spoke German or Norwegian or whatever. There are theological differences. At any given moment in this community, we can have almost every flavor of Christianity. Anglicans, Baptists, Catholics, Mennonites, Pentecostals, Quakers, Reformed. And in that mix, you'll have, you know, like, you know, Pentecostal Anglicans, Reformed Baptists, any combination of the above. Each one of us has our own particular way of looking at the world and looking at the gospel a way that's shaped by our theological heritage and our history that makes sense to us, even if it might seem weird to some of our brothers and sisters. As a pastor, I get it from all angles, right? When I was pastoring in Kabul, people for whom proclamation of the gospel was the main thing would complain to me about those whose focus was more on service. People whose call was mainly to service would complain to me about those who were focused on pro proclamation. 
Non-charismatics complain about charismatics, charismatics complain about non-charismatics, and so on. I don't mind that. People sometimes just need someone to vent to. I'm happy to be that person. And I'm not suggesting that we should tone down all of our beliefs and find some kind of plain vanilla expression of Christianity that no one is happy with. As if that could even happen with this group of people, right? What I'm suggesting is what Paul commands, that we bear with one another in these areas. And as I said, bearing with has, in the very words, the idea of carrying a burden. It's not always easy. It takes work, but it's part of our calling. The last word of Colossians 3.12 is patience. Paul has just finished exhorting the Colossians to clothe themselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And verse 13 is an expansion on what patience means. Similarly, Ephesians 4.2 says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. The word in Greek that's translated patience actually literally is long-nosed. It means long-tempered. Um, well, we all know what short-tempered is, right? That's what you get when you've been traveling for hours in a hot car in the summer and the kids won't stop, won't stop whining, right? That's, that's, we all know what that is. Um, that's when you don't get, when things don't go your way, when you see your plans thwarted by someone else. Part of loving one another is to choose to be long-tempered, to have patience with one another, to cut one another some slack. And in both the Colossians text and in Ephesians, the call to patience comes right after a call to humility. And we get a long way by simply dealing with our pride that says that we know better, that we can do it better. Because that's where a lot of our impatience and irritability comes from. Pride in our own opinions, our own abilities, our own agendas. And Paul says to learn to be humble and patient with each other. And a congregation like this, which actually has a lot of natural leaders in it, um, sometimes it's a challenge to submit to someone else who's leading a ministry, because you're a leader yourself. You know, you may actually be better at the task at hand than the one leading, but they've expected the responsibility and you're just volunteering, you actually need to learn to submit to their leadership. Maybe make a few suggestions, don't get annoyed, don't get accepted, and definitely don't go ahead and do things your own way. You know, that's, that's a challenge because there's so many of us here are leaders and walk into any situation and we immediately go, well, that won't work. We'll do it this way. No, that's, that's, that doesn't help. A little bit of humility and submitting to those who have been put, put in, into the uh, leadership of the position helps. Because you know, being patient with people and bearing with them is kind of like two sides of one coin. Patience is something you extend to others. Bearing with others is something internal to yourself. You make the decision, the choice, not to let it get to you. In practical terms, it means not taking offense. Because some of the hardest people to live with are those who are easily offended, right? They're offended by what others say or don't say. They're offended by what others do or don't do. You know, they take offense. Then they take their offense and they put it in their pocket and carry it around with them. 
there's a lo lovely line in a poem by Robert Burns. There's a poem called Tam O'Shanter. It's about Tam goes off to the pub and he's, he's, he's at the pub drinking with his friends and his wife is at home. As the line describes his wife, it goes, she's sitting at home, gathering her brows like a gathering storm, nursing her wrath to keep it warm. That's what happens when we don't bear with one another. We take offense and we hold on to it. We nurse it and let it fester and grow. It's bad enough when we take offense at others. It's even worse when we take offense for others. Let me give you an example. Let, let's say we have, I have two friends. We'll call them Joe and Mike. Joe has a falling out with, his, you know, his, with Mike. And sorry, sorry, Joe has a, yeah, Joe has a, I'll start that again. Joe has a falling out with a mutual friend, Pete. That, that's right. Because I have these people's faces in my head, right? Uh, and that's what does. He goes and complains to Mike, right? Um, a few weeks later, Joe makes up with Pete, and they're back on good terms again. Meanwhile, however, Mike has taken up Joe's offense, and he's been nursing it. So now he feels like, like it's his offense. Yeah? He tells a story of what happened between Joe and Mike as if he had some kind of stake in it. You know, even though by now, Joe's long over it. Since Mike was never part of the situation in the first place, there's no way for the offense that he took up to be laid back down again. That's what happens when you take up another offense, another's offense. It's one of the most surefire, surefire ways of destroying any community. Is to take up other people's offenses. Guard your hearts. There's nothing wrong with being concerned for justice. There's a fine line between that and taking up another's offense. Bearing with one another, being patient with one another, is how we avoid having what Paul calls grievances against one another. But what do we do if it's too late, if we already have grievances? Well, the answer in Colossians 3.13 is deceptively simple. It says, forgive one another. Right? Said the answer is simple. I didn't say it was easy. What does it really mean to forgive one another? Uh, there's a book by Miroslav Volf called Free of Charge, which is about giving and forgiving. It's a good book. Um, pretty much anything I say here this morning is going to be really shallow compared with what he says in the book. And actually, in his more, he's got an even more famous book, uh, Exclusion and, and Embrace, which has a lot of, to say about forgiveness. I recommend both of them. They can be a bit heavy at times. Um, Miroslav Volf is Croatian, and he writes out of his country's experience of ethnic warfare. So he knows what he's talking about when he talks about forgiveness and reconciliation. So anyway, that's a disclaimer. I want to say a few things about um, forgiveness. First of all, forgiveness is not a feeling, it's a choice. I talked last week about disinterested, disinterested benevolence, you know, like giving money to charity and not getting a tax return. Um, that's not a feeling, that's a choice. Choosing to do what's best for the other person. Forgiveness is the same. It's a choice. Second, forgiveness is not forgetting. When God says he'll forget our sins, it doesn't mean he'll cease to know about them. He's God. 
part of being God is you 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 are as one one theologian put it always in full command of all the available all available facts. Um, what it means is that He will cease to relate to us on the basis of our sin. It's not you know it's it's a metaphor. <laughs> okay, our sin no longer affects His relationship with us. Lewis Smeads, who used to teach uh, ethics at Fuller Seminary, says actually forgiving is the opposite of forgetting. He calls it redemptive remembering. Rather than try and forget the event, you choose not to allow it to affect your relationship. So as you remember what happens, which ha you know, stuff comes to mind, right? As you remember what happens, you recognize that you were hurt, that what the other person did was wrong, and you choose to let it go. And over time, it actually does become easier to let it go until eventually it doesn't come up anymore. That's what forgiveness looks like. I didn't say it was easy. So forgiveness is not excusing. It isn't saying, oh, that's okay, don't worry about it. It isn't excusing what somebody else has done. In fact, Miroslav Wolf says, to forgive is to condemn. You can't forgive someone unless you first recognize that they've done wrong. That's why many people won't allow you to express forgiveness to them. They understand that to accept your forgiveness means admitting that they have done wrong. Forgiveness recognizes that what was done was wrong and inexcusable, and then goes beyond that. It deals honestly with sin, calls it what it is, and then forgives. Wolf says, if I say I forgive you, I have implicitly said you have done something wrong to me. But what forgiveness is at its heart is both saying that justice has been violated and not letting that violation count against the offender. I really encourage you to... Miroslav Wolf is a great theologian. Yeah, I like him. Anyway, um, so forgiveness is not feeling, it's not forgetting, it's not excusing. Paul says to forgive whatever grievances you might have. That means there's something there to be grieved about. Someone has done something and you are grieved. It hurts. By all the rules of society, you have a right to be angry. They owe you something. In fact, one of the words for forgiveness in the New Testament literally means to write off a debt. So what does forgiveness look like in real life? Well, with God's grace, we can choose to do a number of things. We can choose to harbor no malice against those who have offended us. As Christians, we're not allowed to carry a grudge. That's hard sometimes, but you know, we, can't, we can't bear malice against those who have offended us. We can be ready to do them good as if they had, we had no reason to complain. That's what forgiveness is about, right? It's treating people as if they haven't done something to you. We can be willing to declare that we forgive them when they ask and always treat them as kindly as if they hadn't offended us. Sometimes the work of forgiveness can be done quickly. Sometimes if the wound is deep and it's been a long time, it can take a long time before the memory no, no longer brings back the anger and the pain. But when you reach that point, you're free, and so are they. 
That's what forgiveness looks like. Like I said, it's not easy. I just want to have a couple of practical pointers about how this works in community. Um, it's important to be clear about what you're saying. So when you ask for forgiveness, ask for forgiveness. That means going to somebody and saying, I was wrong when I did X, Y, or Z. Please forgive me. Not, I'm sorry if I hurt you. Okay, the if is the problem there. I'm sorry, that I hurt you is a good start, but you still need to ask for forgiveness. Being sorry is not the same thing as asking for forgiveness. Being sorry is just, I feel bad that I did this. I mean, it's not the same thing as asking for forgiveness. Um, and not, you hurt me and I responded wrongly, because that's actually making, you know, pointing the finger at the other person. Asking for forgiveness means, I was wrong, please forgive me. On the other side, when you express forgiveness, that doesn't mean saying, oh, that's okay, all right? It's not okay. If it was okay, you wouldn't be talking about it, right? It means saying, I forgive you. It's only three words, but sometimes very hard to say. Learn to leave the door open as well. It can be hard to get to this point, especially if you're the offended one and you want to see the relationship restored, but you can't see how. You have to heart start with a, a heart of forgiveness towards a person. But as Volf says, to forgive is to condemn. If you tell someone that you forgive them when they're unaware that they've offended you, they're likely to hear that as an accusation. So the first thing to do is to pray for grace and wisdom. And it's always a good idea to start off with I statements. Don't say, you hurt me by saying, say, I was hurt when you said. It's much more effective. And you can't force people to come to the place of forgiveness. But God can work in their hearts to change them. And we just need to be listening. Paul's final word on this is, forgive as the Lord forgave you. We were his enemies and he sought us out and drew us to himself to forgive us and to bring us back into relationship. That's the bottom line. God made us for a relationship with himself, with each other. Jesus came and died on the cross to restore both. If grace is sufficient to restore a sinful human race to himself, God's grace is sufficient for that. Don't you think it's sufficient to restore you to your brother or sister? It doesn't happen by magic or by leaving it alone for weeks, months, or years. It happens by asking for and speaking out forgiveness. It's the only place to start. Now, I was going to, my sermon until yesterday ended there. Uh, and then yesterday morning, I had a conversation with our son, Jason. Um, he was in Poland on his way out for a break. He's working in Ukraine. Um, and he had had dinner on Friday night with a former colleague, a Pole that he had worked with in Afghanistan. And we were talking about how Poland is responding to the invasion of Ukraine, because this is something that we talk about a lot, um, you know, military and security. And stuff. We both worked in security in, in Afghanistan. Um, so, um, so, so Poland is doubling their defense spending, they're running civil defense courses, all kinds of stuff like that. You know. And he mentioned... For his, how for his friend, it's always a toss-up whether she hates the Russians or the Germans more. 
Now, Poles have good reason to distrust, if not hate, both nations historically. So I'm not condemning her, okay? But after that conversation, I realized that this message would be incomplete if I didn't talk about forgiving nations. I've spoken before of my own prejudice against people from the south of England. Sorry, guys. <laughs> you know, I grew up in Scotland. And they were always the enemy. Have been for like, I don't know, 1,500 years. And there's historical reasons for that. And to this day, I have to check my heart in interactions with people who speak with a certain accent. The African brothers and sisters in our midst have much to forgive Europeans and Americans for. You know, colonialism and the slave trade, for starters. The thing is, it's highly unlikely that any of those countries or societies will ever come to those whose forefathers they're abused and ask for forgiveness. That's not going to happen. That doesn't mean that we can carry around an ancient offense in our hearts. And there are lots of ancient offenses that we grow up with. We grow up just learning that these people aren't to be trusted, that these people have done this to us in the past. Paul says, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you have a grievance against someone. If you have a grievance, whether it's against an individual for what they have done to you personally, or against a people for what they have done to your people, the call is actually the same. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. The Lord's Prayer says, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. <clears throat> Psalm 133 says, How very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. We can't have one without the other. They're tied. As we walk along the road together, we are going to hurt one another. Not necessarily, deliberately, just because we're all fallen human beings. We will hurt one another. I don't have to be a prophet to tell you that. But God has given us a way to deal with these things. We don't have to resort to the ways of the world. He calls us to be patient and to bear with one another so we don't get offended. And when we do sin against one another and grieve one another, he calls us to restore that relationship and forgiveness. There are no shortcuts. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, we recognize that we are all both capable of hurting and being hurt by one another, by those that we share our lives with. We recognize, Lord, that that's just part of being human, part of being fallen, part of having the mark of sin upon our lives, even as we're redeemed. 
So Lord, we ask for your grace. We ask for your grace, Lord, because it's only by your grace that we can bear with one another. It's only by your grace that we can forgive one another, Lord. And Lord, it's only through forgiveness that we actually set ourselves free. So Lord, we pray for that. We pray that you would enable us to be a community of people who are forthright and honest about where hurt has been experienced and willing to express and ask for forgiveness. And Lord, we continue to pray for the another conflict that's going on north of us in, in Ukraine. Um, we pray for those who have fled to Turkey for, for safety. I think particularly of what Angie said about the, the caregivers who are burnt out from caring for these kids. Pray, Lord, your blessing upon, upon them. Pray for the orphans, for those who are beginning to experience some small aspect of healing from the trauma that they've experienced. Lord, thank you for the, the privilege of being part of that as a congregation, as an as international community here. Lord, we pray for an end to the war. Recognizing that wars are complicated and that there are no easy answers here. So Lord, we pray for that. Lord, we continue to pray for the people of the UK as um, they move towards the funeral for Queen Elizabeth tomorrow. I know that um, some will be watching that on, online. Pray for, um, for comfort for those who are just experiencing a great deal of grief. And pray for King Charles as he takes up the throne. Lord, we pray for Pakistan and uh, catastrophic floods there. More than 33 million people affected. Millions of homes destroyed. Um, it's going to take months for some of the the areas to, to the waters to recede in some areas. Um, waterborne diseases, cholera, dengue fever, all kinds of stuff like that, just going through the roof. Lord Jesus, have mercy, we pray. Pray for those who are seeking to meet the needs of those who have been displaced, those who have been um, who are sick. Lord, pray for your, your grace and strength for them. And Lord, we pray for this upcoming night of worship, October 1st. Lord, would you enable us in some small way to demonstrate that we love one another across linguistic and theological and all kinds of other um, barriers, that you might be glorified, we pray. Amen. <laughs>